thousands of years ago, um, before the electricity and the ways that we communicate, there is um, when wars would happen, there would be battles that were fought, and you know maybe you can imagine sending loved ones off from your city off to war somewhere out there, and they're going to walk, not fly, right, to, to get to wherever the battle is in some other city or country. Um, and it's going to take them a long time to get there, but not only is it going to take them a long time to get there, but when the battles are fought, in order for word to get back to the, the home city, it's also going to take a long time to get back. They're not going to get the newsfeed of what happened on the battlefield. So what would happen is there would be like kind of marathon runner type people who would run from, from the battle back home to report the news of what happened on the battlefield. And it'd take just as long or maybe not quite as long because they were running, but as it took to get to wherever the battle was in the first place. So you can imagine like in a city that has sent people off to war, you have this, this watchman or this group of watchmen who are looking out um, from the watchtower, they're looking out at the horizon to look for these runners coming back to bring news of what happened out on the field. And they'd be waiting along with the rest of the city in great anticipation of what, um, of what the results of the battles were. And so you can imagine if they would finally see that, that runner coming on the horizon and the dirt being kicked up and um, just with great anticipation, they're waiting for this message. Well, if if it was good news, if they won or were winning, um, that was called gospel. They were bringing the gospel, the good news. Um, it's kind of what Isaiah describes, though Isaiah is looking to the future with the Messiah, but Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings gospel or good news who publishes peace, who brings gospel, good news, of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's gospel. When Caesar Augustus was born, um, there's an inscription that was found from 9 B.C., that was like a birth announcement for Caesar Augustus. And the inscription said, our translation says this, speaking of Caesar, he is a savior for us and for us and those who come after us to make war cease, to create order everywhere. They're talking about this new baby that was born. And whereas the birthday of the God, meaning Augustus, Caesar Augustus, was the beginning of the world of the glad tidings that have come to men through him. That glad tidings is, is the Greek word gospel. So this amazing birth announcement of this person that the Romans kind of saw as basically a god that was going to bring victory to the people in Rome, it was an announcement that was, that was called gospel. Last Thursday... I got a text, a gospel text, um, about a baby that was born that's six pounds, zero ounces, and 18 inches, or centimeters, inches, I guess. Um, Elise, Avalos, 
it was an announcement of good news. And it's a big, it's like, it's not just a little, oh, I passed a test or whatever, but it's, it's big news. It's matters gospel meant a matter of life and death. Or meant, it's like going to be some huge significant change in the course of history, gospel. An announcement of a good message. So we're going to dive tonight and for the next probably five months into the gospel of Mark. And we know the word gospel because it later, like beginning of the second century, becomes how we, how we talk about Matthew, Mark, and the Bible, their gospels. But um, before that, and when people were first reading or hearing the gospel of Mark, it simply meant to them, this is really good news, or a really important announcement, or a really important message. So this is the gospel of Mark. Um, I'd, I would love if you could turn there. I'm going to look at a couple of specific things, so like turn or poke around for your Bible. Um, Mark, the gospel of Mark. So Mark's name isn't mentioned in the book, but all ancient tradition that we have and um, all of the early church fathers and everybody that write about this book attribute the work to Mark, specifically to John Mark, who we read about in the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament. And every ancient document that we have that's part of Mark's letter here has Mark at the, at the title of it. Uh, even though the actual message within doesn't say his name. So Mark was a Jewish Christian uh, who grew up in Jerusalem, was part of the first church. Um, He probably was somebody, we think, who responded to Peter's preaching. He had some kind of close connection with Peter, so that Peter, in 1 Peter, calls Mark my son. Um, he, he probably was, a, was a, a convert to Christianity by hearing the gospel preached by Peter, I think. Um, certainly he was around Peter and Paul and John and all those bigwigs in the early church. Um, Acts tells us that Mark, the writer of this book, went with Paul and went with his cousin Barnabas to Antioch on their first like missionary journey as the gospel of Jesus is being spread. At some point, if you guys remember, there's a little fallout between John Mark and, and Paul. And, but later, well, a lot of people don't realize this, Mark joins back up with Paul in Rome to minister together again. So it must not have been too big of a tiff. And then at some point he ministers with, with Peter again in Rome, and then Peter dies, and then he's back with Paul again, we read in first or in Second Timothy. So um, the early church tradition tells us that Mark was closely associated with Peter. And um, probably, probably Mark was written just after the death of Peter or just before the death of Peter. So you have Peter, this, this eyewitness, right, that we read about, this eyewitness of Jesus. And um, it's very, uh, we know a ton about Peter, right, from the gospel stories. Um, but we have Peter who as he's dying, he, Mark functions kind of as his mouthpiece. So instead of like this actual verbal eyewitness testimony that Peter gives, as Peter's dying, Mark's like, I got to write this stuff down so that this will be passed on, this will be preserved, and it'll be passed on from generation to generation, this Peter's writing, we think. Um, and you think, like, who better? This is probably the first gospel written, Mark. And you think, who better to write down this first gospel than Mark, who had been a witness to the preaching of Paul and a witness to the preaching of, um, of Peter and these great, like, the, the most famous, eloquent preachers of the gospel. And Mark's like, I'm going to take down 
um, on, on paper a gospel account, probably written in Rome to Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. So Mark is, you know, when we read scripture, we have to know kind of what genre we're reading. The gospels, like Mark, are kind of interesting because they're a, a genre kind of of their own. Um, it's not exactly a biography of Jesus. If it were, then Mark probably would have included stuff like about Jesus' birth and leaving earth and like his whole life. Mark himself doesn't. It starts with Jesus as a 30-year-old man. It's not exactly a, a record of history like Mark is just trying to be a historian. He doesn't use a lot of place names and specific dates and all that stuff. But he's creating, I don't think he knows he's creating, but he's writing a new genre called a gospel. And this gospel is purposed to proclaim a message, to proclaim a specific message, to pass along some bit of good news. And so Mark uses in the gospel, he, he leaves a lot of stuff out that the other writers write about, but he uses in the gospel only the stuff that is pertinent to what he wants to communicate. We're going to see the majority of the book of Mark, the last half of it, is about the road to the cross and the resurrection. And it's like the first half of the book is just leading up to that. But he's not concerned with just saying, here's everything about the person of Jesus or here's everything that's going on in the land of Israel at that time. Many people call this a missionary gospel or an evangelist gospel because it was made to go out to those who don't believe, just like the people that Mark was in good company with, with Peter and Paul as they're doing that all over the Roman Empire. So the first verse introduces um, this gospel by saying this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A gospel is going to be a word that we'll come back to again and again. Mark uses it a lot. Um, and there will be some clarification to this word gospel as we go along. And Lord willing, we will receive and respond appropriately to the gospel. Um, but we won't have a full definition of it uh, here tonight. Um, before I kind of just read this passage for us, I want to ask the question. Actually, let's read it. Let's read it first. Um, Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel, remember just what that word means, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then he came up out of the water. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit 
immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Before I point out anything, I just want to ask a question. I don't want you to answer it exactly, but just be thinking about this in the back of your mind, and even throughout this whole teaching series through the back of your mind. It starts out, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If this is the beginning of the gospel, then what is the end? Like we know, we, some of us would say we know this, the, the gospel, but Mark says this is the beginning. I wonder, what would we say is the end? Or, or what would Mark say is the end of the gospel? What would Mark say is the, even the middle of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I think we'll, we'll find out through the, through the study what that means. Um, like, are we going to get to chapter 16, the end of the, the gospel of Mark, and is it going to say the end? Okay, there's the story. It's closed. Or what does he mean this is the beginning? What does the end look like? What's, what's the rest of the story? So just ponder that as we study through the book of Mark. I'll try to bring it up again before the end. A quick clarification, John's baptism. I don't, do you all... I've, I'm always kind of confused about that. Wait, what was John doing? Because when we're baptized, we're baptized like as a symbol of being in Christ and his death and in his resurrection, right? But that hadn't happened yet when John was baptizing people. So what was that? Um, it wasn't new for a prophet to be proclaiming repentance. That part of John's, I mean, maybe the Israelites hadn't heard that for a long time or the Jews, but um, that's what prophets do, right? You've got to hold chunk of the Old Testament where the prophets are claiming repentance, but this idea of the baptism of John, honestly, I can't say for sure that anybody knows what exactly that was, Um, but certainly it has something to do with the cleansing of sin or being washed kind of of sin in a symbolic way. It's kind of presented here as this is some kind of preparation, believing that what, what John is saying, that, that there's one to come, the, the strap of whose sandal he's not worthy to untie. People are thinking maybe Messiah, but it's some kind of a baptism preparing for that and cleansing and saying, I want to repent. And there's this idea of going to the wilderness. That's where Israel started in their covenant relationship with God and this idea of being cleansed of sin. So not exactly sure what's, what's, um, what's going on with the baptism there. Um, it seems that, if you, if you look at the book of Matthew, it seems that Mark is kind of clearing up a misconception about baptism. Um, there were some people that came out to John to be baptized, and they're saying, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a son of Abraham, kind of like, why, why do I need to be baptized? And what, what John the Baptist is doing is going and saying, hey, being a son of Abraham or being a Jew doesn't necessarily mean anything to you. Your pedigree doesn't matter. What matters is that we're making, you make a conscious decision to repent of your sin. And so there's this washing that has to take place that doesn't have to do with where you're from. And as this is written, as the book of Mark is written to probably mostly Gentile or non-Jew people, Jewish people, um, it'd be, it'd be kind of nice to understand that, oh, baptism is for anybody who's coming out to Christ. Um, anyway, it doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity. It seems that John's baptism is saying, hey, if you want to be in covenant relationship with God now, there is a, there is a cleansing that takes place that doesn't have to do with your ethnicity. 
And so Jesus, John talks, or Mark talks about it, and John the Baptist talks about it in verse 8. Jesus kind of has this new type of baptism that maybe we'll talk about uh, another time. But, and eventually, Paul, if you read uh, in Acts 19, eventually Paul baptizes the Ephesian believers again in the name of Jesus now. So they'd, been, they'd had John's baptism, which is like repentance. Yes, we're ready for this Messiah to come. And then when they believe in Jesus, they do what we do. And we're baptized saying, yeah, identify, I identify with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So um, three quick kind of just gospel concepts that I want to point out in this introduction that I think will help, hopefully help guide us through the whole of the book as we study it. And I'll probably add another one next week. Um, first of all, we'll look through this just a bit. The gospel is good news about a specific person, namely Jesus, right? The gospel is good news about a specific person. Now, this is going to be important, and I, like, probably think, well, duh, the gospel is about Jesus. Like, that's, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you guys that most people don't know who Jesus is. I was having a conversation recently with Clayton, and we were talking about, we were just getting kind of frustrated because it's like, well, who's ever going to come to know Christ? And we just don't see a lot of people turning to him. People here in this post-Christian kind of world, have they already know the gospel, they already know Jesus. But do they really know who Jesus is? Like if you, maybe they recognize his picture that looks kind of like Charlton Heston or whoever played Jesus or or. Uh, Jim Caviezel or whatever, uh, and maybe they know, oh, gee, that person up on the cross, oh, he has something to do with Christianity, and that's Jesus and whatever, but do they really know who Jesus is? Do they really know the, the Jesus that the gospel is about? And do we even know who Jesus is? Like, there's going to be a point when we come to this gospel that we see, we have realizations of who Jesus is, and we come to know him, and we come to know him a little bit more and a little bit more, but our, our view, our understanding of him is never complete. I, I would even venture to say it might not even com- be fully complete one day in heaven. I think we still might have some things about Christ to learn when we're there. But some of the point of Mark is that the person of Jesus takes uh, definition. Like it's not just you, you believe in Jesus, you understand who he is like that, but it takes some specific definition. So in the first verse, there's three descriptors of Jesus. He's, he's Jesus, he's Christ, Jesus Christ, he's the son of God. Jesus, his, that name means God is salvation or has something to do with Jesus being a savior just in the name itself of Jesus. Messiah or Christ, that has to do with Jesus being maybe a close word that we have for that is king. Son of God, that's something that is maybe a step above a king in our minds. So in the first line, we're already starting to get some definition of who who the gospel is about, the person that the gospel is about in Jesus. He's the savior, he's the king, he's God. That's kind of the outline of the book, by the way. So if you see, he's Jesus, Christ, the Son of God, Messiah, Son of God. There's, we'll see there's two great kind of confessions in the book. Chapter 8, halfway through the book, Jesus asks Peter, who, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the, you all know? 
It's the great confession of Peter. You are the Christ or the Messiah. So he recognizes Jesus as Messiah. Okay, that's halfway through the book. Then at the end of the book, there's another great confession. Jesus has died on the cross, and the Roman centurion says, truly, this man was the Son of God. So there's the two. So Mark's kind of laid out the, the, the framework for his book. He's going to show Jesus as Messiah, which is recognized by Peter halfway through. Then he's going to show Jesus as the Son of God, which is recognized by a Roman at the end. We can also see it right here at the very beginning. John is proclaiming a message about what the prophets have talked about. There's a king coming. There's a, there's a Messiah coming. And then when Jesus comes up out of the water, God says, you are my son, so we're seeing these ideas of defining who this gospel is about. It's about Jesus, the Savior, who is the king. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, and he's the son of God. And that's going to become more and more into focus as we move along. But the reason I say that, the reason that I point it out is for this. Um, our gospel, the gospel of Jesus, is not primarily about believing in God. The gospel is not primarily about believing in God. So a lot of times we'll hear like, this person that I know, you know, they're not really following Jesus, but I know that they believe in God, so they're good. It's, it's like they, they believe the good news. They believe that, that God is, is there. That's not our gospel. That's not the gospel that the Bible teaches God reveals his plan of salvation through a very specific and a very unique person, Jesus. And I think scripture would, would agree that most people can believe and understand that there is, is God. That's not, that's not gospel. I mean, maybe that's uh, something that you have to come to the gospel with is that there's a belief in God, but that's not gospel. The entire good news of scripture is pointing, as, as the Bible Project guys say, it's, it's one unified story that points to Jesus. So you can go to the very beginning, and in the third chapter in Genesis, you see about Jesus. He is the, he is the one that's going to, he's going to come, and he's going to crush the head of Satan, right? And then you read through the whole Old Testament, and you hear these whispers, and these cries, and these proclamations about this coming Messiah, who's going to be Jesus, Jesus himself points back to the scriptures, the whole of Moses and all the prophets, the law of Moses, and he says, all of those things, this whole chunk right here, this is about me, that Old Testament, this is about me, and he explains how it's about him. Then you come to the New Testament, it's about Jesus too. The first, almost half of it is these gospel stories about the life and the death of Jesus. And then you get to Acts, where that message about Jesus is starting to be proclaimed all over Rome. And then you come to all these letters, which is about how to live in Jesus. And then you come to the book of Revelation, which is, you hear this refrain over and over talking about the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. And the very end, the last verse, or second to last verse in the Bible is saying, come, Lord Jesus. It's a book all about Jesus. There's no mistaking who the story is about. And that is who our gospel is about. And there's no other name, Acts says, there's, or there's salvation in no one else, and no other name. No other name by which we must be saved. So when somebody says, well, I believe in God, or they believe in God, I almost think to myself, okay, um, like, what do you, do you believe in Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? 
Well, I believe well, he existed. He died on the sin. No, no, there's, there's specificity in the gospel to who Jesus is. It's not just, I just have this concept of this guy that I've seen on a cross before. And yes, I believe that he died on, my, for, on the cross for my sins. But now, do you know who Jesus is? Because Mark, in the shortest of all the gospels, still spends 16 chapters talking about this very specific and unique person of Jesus. He doesn't just say he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, but he, he shows what type of Messiah he is and how the Son of God is going to be a Savior for people. So the gospel is about a person, Jesus. It's not just about believing in God. And so the gospel isn't transmitted until Jesus has specifically been told. So um, an evangelist telling somebody, hey, you, you need to believe in God. That's the most important thing. As long as you believe in God, you're good. Would be like this. It'd be like if you were getting a physical exam, like a routine kind of, uh, what do they call it? Yeah, just a physical, a yearly checkup. And the doctor does maybe blood work and kind of feels around on you and whatever they do. I don't know what they do for girls. I know what they do for guys. And um, and I know what they do for guys when they turn 55, too. I've just found that out. But um, They do this checkup, and uh, let's say that in, somehow in all the testing that they do, they find that they believe you have cancer. Okay. Well, what if the doctor comes up to you and tells you, I checked everything over, and I just want to make sure you know that you are not going to live forever. And then you walk away and you're like, cool. I already knew that. Like, most people know that. We kind of agree with that. That's just a, that's a good general truth. And you move on with your life, right? The gospel is a message that is specifically and critically about Jesus. And he's a linchpin that without him, there is no good news. You can tell some general news. There is a God that 90-something percent of the world is going to agree with. Yeah, there's something out there. I believe that. But there is specificity to who God is, and that's the person of Jesus, and that's who our gospel is about. So do you guys understand? It's, it's not the vague, yeah, you're going to die one day. No, it's you have a specific problem. Just like, yeah, God exists, but there's a specific person in whom God exists, the person of Jesus. Um, so I just ask you guys, is your gospel clouded with vagueness as you talk to people about Jesus? Does it ever kind of sound like, well, I go to church, um, Oh, you believe in God? Oh, I believe in God. Or I go to church too. Yeah, cool. We're good. Or, man, I really put myself out there. And I, I told this person that I'm, I'm involved in church or I'm a Christian. Those are like good things to say. I don't, you shouldn't hold back on that. But you haven't, you haven't told the gospel yet. Um, so where is Jesus in the gospel that you present? If he's not talked of specifically and we don't take care to explain to people who he is, then we haven't shared the gospel. And I understand you can't always sit down with somebody over lunch and just tell them the fullness of who Jesus is and every aspect of Jesus' character and his life and who, what, what he represents and who he is. 
However, Mark, you could read through the book of Mark in an hour and a half, and you're going to get a pretty comprehensive understanding of who Jesus is. But I'm hoping that as we study this book that we will get to know Jesus um, together very clearly and specifically so that we know how to preach the gospel of Jesus. And what are the important parts about who he is, which Mark lines out pretty succinctly, and um, maybe God would give us the boldness to share those things. So we're going to see Jesus as Messiah and as the Son of God, but the gospel is news about a specific person, Jesus, okay? Um, The gospel is good news in an unexpected way. So turn back, if, if if you're not there, Mark 1. I want to point out a couple, something that Mark is doing literarily. Not literally, literarily, and literally, both. Uh, verse 5 and verse 9, I think, are meant to be like set, are, are meant to be compared to each other and kind of contrasted. Verse 5 says, All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John the Baptist and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay? Verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now the sentence structure on those is very um, very similar. You have a people or a group of people who are coming to be baptized in the Jordan or in the river Jordan. All the people of Judea and Jerusalem, it says, now that's hyperbole, I don't think it was literally everybody, but a bunch of people versus, uh, and coming from Judea and Jerusalem versus Jesus, one person coming from Galilee, Nazareth in Galilee, okay? What do we know about Jerusalem? What's Jerusalem and Judea? What's the significance of those places? Anything. What's in Jerusalem? Okay, the temple. Is it an important city? Not so important. Yeah, okay, it's the capital city. It's, it's, it's the big place. Everybody knows about it. Everybody's visited there. It's, it's, it's significant in the land of Judea. This is the like genuine Jewish people. This is the hub of where they're at. Versus Jesus comes from Galilee. What might you know about Galilee or Nazareth? What's that? Backwater town, Nazareth, yeah. What? Anything else? Yeah, that's good. Nothing good comes from there. So Galilee is kind of up in the north. It's full, there's, there's Jews up there, but there's also a lot of Gentiles who were moved in hundreds of years earlier. And they are people, many of whom even the Jews kind of have disregarded the law up there. They're kind of a rebellious people. And this one man, Jesus, and, and Nazareth is like the least significant town or just little town in Galilee that doesn't really mean much. There's some like big Bet Shean and some um, other big cities in the area of Galilee, but Nazareth is nothing much to speak of. And this is where Jesus comes from. So it might be surprising to find out as you read this that Jesus was raised in Galilee of the Gentiles if you were just hearing this story. 
And John the Baptist has just said at this point that after me comes he who is mightier than I. So this is a prophet, John. He's calling, hey, there's this mighty king coming, the anointed one, this Messiah, maybe it's him. And, and Jesus of Nazareth comes down, this Jesus that the gospel is about. So we see, like, this is kind of unexpected. This is might, and this is a king being displayed in a very kind of unexpected way. And then there, you can see kind of a crazy transition in that from verses 7 and 8 to verse 9. Like John's saying, this, this, this guy, he's going to have a much greater ministry. He's much mightier than I. He has a much different baptism. It's so much different and, and, and better and bigger than my baptism that I'm providing. And then Jesus of Galilee comes to be baptized by John with John's baptism. Matthew describes how that was even confusing to John. John's like, me, baptize you? This doesn't make any sense. This is unexpected. Another difference between verses 5 and verse 9. Verse 5, they were coming out, being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And then verse 9, Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, period. So Jesus doesn't come confessing his sins. Why? Because he doesn't have any sins to confess. There's this contrast between the people that John is baptizing, all of those in Judea and Jerusalem who are confessing their sins and being forgiven. Some, I think, even saying, hey, I don't need that. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm already in good with God. And then you have Jesus, with whom God is certainly well-pleased and even says so, who's coming and being baptized. Why... Why have you guys heard, or why do you think Jesus was, was baptized? It's kind of weird if he didn't have any sin to confess. Okay, so an, an example, yeah. So Matthew says that um, Jesus was, his baptism was purposed to fulfill all righteousness. Okay? Um, so you could say maybe it's to set an example of how we are supposed to be, what we are supposed to do, which would include baptism. So maybe Jesus is saying something like this. I'm not calling you, my followers, to do anything that I haven't done already. In fact, that's going to be something probably that we could say a number of times as we look at the story of Jesus. I'm not calling you to do something that I haven't done already. But I think it goes even beyond Jesus, like, checking the boxes, making sure that he sets a good example for people that they would do all of the right things that he would do. How he got his power? Is that what you said, Charles? His superpowers. <laughs> well, we see, we see what happening afterwards. Well, the Spirit comes upon him, so maybe there's, there's some special um, empowerment that, that happens about that time. Somehow, I think here, Jesus is identifying with sinful man. So all these people are coming out to be baptized who need to be confessing their sins and need to be repenting and need to be forgiven of sin. And Jesus, though he has no sin, is coming to do the same sort of thing. He's, he's doing all that is required of mankind for obedience to God. So you and I, we have to repent because we've done things that are not right. 
and Jesus is somehow even doing repentance. Christ's mission was to fulfill all righteousness. That's no problem because, you know, Jesus can do a lot of right things. But if he would truly identify with us, he also must accomplish somehow a perfect repentance. So he identified himself so much with the humanity that he would save that he put on their sin and he said, here's, here's how you repent, you guys. Like we can't even, we can't even always repent rightly. <laughs> so Jesus helps us in that repentance. He's done everything for us, not just to live righteously, but to demonstrate repentance. And so this is good news in a, in a really unexpected way that this Messiah King would come to serve people. He'd be a servant to mankind and bring himself even to, to take on our sin and to demonstrate some sort of repentance in his baptism. Well, what, what happens next there is another crazy thing. There's these huge swings back and forth. So there's this swing of, of, of the way that uh, Mark sets up the gospel, and then we hear of John the Baptist talking about Jesus, and he's going to be this mightier one than I, and he's going to carry with him this great baptism. And then Jesus comes from Galilee, and he's baptized by John, and it's kind of, well, that's odd. But then there's this giant swing the other way, and a voice from heaven speaks down, and the Spirit comes down on, on Jesus, and God says, you are my son, and with you I'm very well pleased. So then it's like, oh my gosh, yes, this is a huge story again. And the heavens are torn open, it says, and the Spirit of God comes down. So it's like, yes, even though Jesus was baptized, symbolizing repentance, make no mistake, this is the Son of God. But then, interestingly, a huge swing again, right after God says, you are my Son, what happens to the one with whom God is well pleased, but he sends him into the wilderness? So we see that life for the beloved Son of God unexpectedly meant being driven into the wilderness to be with wild animals and to be by, tempted by Satan himself. You all see, like, this is an unexpected kind of nature and events that are happening in this good news of the gospel. Not only was the good news being accomplished unexpectedly, unexpectedly by a mighty king with a greater baptism, showing up as a Galilean, getting baptized. But the good news is happening unexpectedly. As the rival of the Son of God, with whom God is well pleased, he's going to have a magnificent ministry, which, by the way, is going to begin with suffering in the wilderness for 40 days, which God drives him into. So to our first point, um, the king, the Son of God, isn't who people may expect him to be. Um, the gospel may not be exactly what people are expecting. Um, Clayton, you weren't here yet, but I mentioned earlier how we were talking a few days ago about do people even really know the gospel? Like we're in this post-Christian context. Do people even really know who Jesus is? We think that they kind of do, but do they really? And I wonder in our own context, as Mark has to explain in the first century, Messiah, Son of God, not exactly who you think him to be. I wonder if our own context, people have this understanding of Jesus, good guy, crazy guy, whatever it is, but maybe not exactly who he actually is. Maybe there's still good news to be proclaimed. Um, thirdly, lastly, the gospel is good news that is to be 
proclaimed. Just to help kind of guide us as we walk through this book of Mark. The gospel is about a person, a specific person, Jesus. The gospel, it, it happens, the events that unfold is, is a story that has some unexpected twists and turns. And we're going to have to kind of hone in on who this pe- person of Jesus is. And the gospel, by nature of the word, is news to be proclaimed. When we get to the end of the gospel, I hope it's super clear, but even in the beginning, we can see the idea of proclamation. So I mentioned gospel. It means, in essence, it means good news, but it's good news in a, in a proclaiming kind of sense. This is really good news, and, and it's inherent in that word itself. This is the gospel of Jesus. Not only that, but right here at the beginning, we see it's meant to be proclaimed as the prophet Isaiah is mentioned. Isaiah is pointing forward to John. Isaiah is saying, hey, there's somebody that's going to be coming. John's saying, hey, this guy, he's almost here. There's somebody that's going to be coming. They're proclaiming the words that it uses for John. In verse 4, he's proclaiming a message. In verse 7, he's preaching a message. So the first character in the gospel or the proclamation of Mark, the first character is John the Baptist, who is a proclaimer. He is preaching some news. He's, he's speaking out a message that needs to be heard, pointing to Jesus. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is how it starts. It's John's proclamation. Next week, the first thing that we're going to see Jesus doing is proclaiming. He's speaking a message. This is something that he's putting out there that he's saying this needs to be heard not only that, but Mark is writing down this whole thing as, as, as a response and putting down the preaching, the, the word that he's heard Peter and maybe others preaching. There's this proclamation that needs to go on and on, so he's making sure that it can continue to be proclaimed by writing it down. The gospel is meant to be good news that is proclaimed, not to sit on a shelf, not to rust in our hearts, but to be proclaimed. Now, I'm really happy to say that I don't think our church, um, I don't, our, we don't have a lot of dusty Bibles in our church that I've seen. Um, like we, we talk about the gospel a lot. We talk about the Bible a lot, um, or quite a bit. Every week we, we take communion together. Somebody shares, hey, you know, let's be reminded about Jesus and what he's done for us. Um, in our fellowship meals, sometimes people say, let me just read a little bit from this Bible, from, from this good news, this truth of God's word. Maybe we talk about it in other contexts. We're studying the gospel right now. I don't think it's dusty. The Bible isn't dusty in our lives. But as uh, we, we type about it in our little app, right, the New Testament, we're reading through Matthew right now, and we're like, hey, check this out. This is good news. Isn't this cool what happened here? And we're proclaiming it among ourselves. But like I said, at the beginning, this is a this is a missionary gospel. This is a evangelist gospel. That's how a lot of scholars will refer to the book of Mark. The gospel is not only meant to sustain and save us, but it's meant to be proclaimed out there. For once, I can say out there, like outside the, the church building. So I want to just challenge you guys over the next several months. I don't know if you, if you want this challenge or not, um, but I want to challenge you to be a proclaimer of the gospel. 
and by gospel, you're starting to see what I'm talking about and starting to see what Mark is talking about. And it's going to come into hopefully a lot more clarity as we move along. But I want to challenge you to become a proclaimer of the gospel. That's, that's what the gospel is for. It's meant to be proclaimed. Now, you might think, well, I'm not really an evangelist. That's not my thing. And I hope by the end of our study of the book of Mark, you're going to realize, yeah, you are. As a, as a follower of Christ, you are. You're a proclaimer of the gospel. You might think to yourself, well, I don't even really know how to clearly proclaim the gospel. Like, I, don't, I never memorized anything, or, or, or I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to proclaim in the gospel. And I think, man, this is the perfect time. Like, we're studying through the book of Mark, the most kind of succinct version of the gospel that we have. And we're going to learn it together. Let's learn it together. And it's not going to get, hopefully, any clearer than this. And so I'm praying that as we walk through this together, we'll, we'll join in and pursue clarity as to like, what is this gospel? If it's meant to be proclaimed, if it's good news, what specifically is it? Who is Jesus specifically? What do I need to say about who Jesus is? What is the content of the gospel itself? Is the gospel that the whole world one day is going to get better? Is the gospel that we should be nice to people? What is the content of the gospel, and what does it mean in my life? Now, you might think to yourself, on the other hand, I already preach the gospel. Like, I'm already doing this. I would just ask you in our study here to make sure that you're preaching the same gospel that Mark is preaching. Specifically, it's a gospel about a king. I don't know how often you use words like this, but it's a gospel about the Son of God. It's a gospel that has a lot of things that are kind of unexpected about it. Like, do you find yourself actually, when you're sharing the gospel now, Do you find yourself actually talking about the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus? I'm going to go ahead and give you a, a spoiler alert. That's going to be a big part of the, the gospel, okay, that we proclaim. Or is it kind of like, well, I shared the gospel because I told somebody that I'm a Christian and I invited them to church and, you know, they know that I'm a person of faith. and I, Like, you didn't tell them the gospel of Jesus. You talked about yourself some, and, th- and that's, that's good. Like, that's where conversations start. That leads into gospel conversation. But, but sharing the gospel is, as we'll see from Mark, there's a specific message about Jesus, and it goes much beyond um, maybe some of the ways that we have been faithful in conversation, but it goes much further than that. Um, and if you're like me, uh, you might think, well, preaching the gospel may, that sounds kind of uncomfortable. Um, and I hope after we, we read Mark that we understand that Jesus calls his followers to a lot more than discomfort. He calls us to suffering and to death. And that's like welcome to following Jesus. That's, that's the cost that we have to count. So lastly, you might think, well, gosh, is, is this news really that good that I would want to put myself through that? Mark starts this gospel saying this, this is the gospel of Jesus. This is the good news. Remember, picture the, the watchman in his tower, like looking at the horizon waiting to see when that runner's going to come in with word about the battle and maybe he sees 
oh, there's, there's a stirring over the hill and it's starting to come up and he's, he's listening. Well, what's happened? What happened out there? And he's listening and off in the distance he hears gospel, gospel, good news. There's victory. That's the, that's the message that, that Mark is saying. It's a, it's a gospel message. It's a good news that needs to be proclaimed. And we're going to decide, um, is, is it really that good? I love how Isaiah, um, that passage I read earlier, I'll read just a little bit more of it to end. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring gospel or good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And it says the voice of your watchmen, the, the, the people who hear that good news They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Y'all, the gospel is good news. Not meant to sit on a shelf. Not meant to just encourage us and to grow us and to come kind of to rust away in our hearts. This is an announcement of life and death and victory, and it's so good that it is to be proclaimed. So let's learn it together and be challenged um, by God's word and empowered by the Spirit to, to live that out and be proclaimers of that. All right, let's pray. Father, help us to believe the gospel. Help us to believe that this is the ultimate good news without which we are utterly hopeless. Help us to understand, Father, who Jesus is. Help, help that to just become more and more crystal clear as we mature in you, as we study this book of Mark. Help us to understand more what Jesus is, who he is as a savior, who he is as the Messiah, who he is as, the, as your son. God, would that come into focus I pray that we would even be surprised by some of the things that we see that are surprising about Jesus that aren't what we are expecting about him that make him a different kind of a king, a different type of a deity than we would expect. And God, I pray more than anything that you would help us as a church, as individuals to become proclaimers of this gospel, the gospel that we have received, that somebody proclaimed to us, that your word proclaims to us, that your spirit has opened our eyes to see and understand, and that we would turn around because of how great and good the news is, we would turn around and proclaim it to all of those around us. God, it's a matter of life and death. It is um, the greatest announcement that we have to give So help us to dig deep into this gospel and live appropriately in light of it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.